So my guest today set up an offshore financial brokerage called Cameron Butler in Hong Kong during the 1990s. This was one of the most interesting times from an economic perspective in history, really, as during the 1990s, Hong Kong was one of the closest things to a free market economy up until the 1997 when there was a stock crisis and a handover with China. All right, so we're live. So the best place um, to start really is just to understand what Cameron Butler is. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a brief overview of what Cameron Butler is. Okay. Well, it was uh, described as an offshore financial brokerage. And there were many offices in Asia in the end, but we started in Hong Kong. Uh, The idea was to provide financial services to, well, not just expats, but anybody uh, worldwide, really. Um, I think that's what we did. So as a brokerage, what does that entail? Well, uh, you're sort of an intermediary uh, between providers of financial devices and uh, instruments you know for investment either for lump sum or long-term savings plans and, and a client so you could like any other uh, situation where you go and buy something you could just go direct but in that way you you're not doing a comparison so the what the broker does is finds out your details tries to identify your needs financially and then match them with a product that's out there. So how do you how do you decide like what their needs are and what makes you choose like whether the type of security, like whether it's a bond or a stock or whatever? Okay, well the, the typical situation is you arrange an appointment with the client. Uh, first time probably takes I don't know. 45 minutes to an hour, something like that. And we have a, a stock inquiry system where you extract uh, all the information that you need in order to make a judgment. So you just go through this stock set of uh, questions, talking about their personal finance situation, their employment prospects, uh, any net worth they may have. They may be a very wealthy person already, or there may be somebody that is seeking to start out on an investment program because they have uh, extra cash and you know, they're not using for everyday needs. So, and then uh, you go away, having had a meeting, then you go away and look at what matches up closest to their requirements and then come back and present that. So for, for these people who are like, as you described there, wanting to start out with this investment plan, so what would that involve? What would you what would you give to them? What would you propose? Well, invariably, these plans are the big advantage for anyone uh, that's working offshore. Many of them are con- on contract work. They don't have any pension plan or any long-term investment plan. And many of them have uh, excess income 
because of where they are, they're getting paid extra bonuses for working offshore. So this is an ideal situation for somebody to start an investment which they can carry with them from contract to contract or from country to country. And of course, apart from the great flexibility and mobility is that you can house this investment in somewhere that's a, a tax friendly zone, say the Isle of Man or Jersey, Guernsey, one of these offshore situations. So that's the attraction there. So how would it work? Would you just buy a bond and then that would just keep ticking over or was it a regular investment? How would Cameron Butler uh, deal with this? Okay. Well, let's say uh, two examples and sometimes both examples apply to the same person or the same client. But if you met somebody that had high net worth, they have already amassed uh, an amount of money which they feel isn't working for them. It may be just in a bank, something like that, and they want to do something better with it. So this tends to be, you're looking at a lump sum investment. So we, the general term is a bond and they can be, they're obviously government bonds, which are very uh, stable with a guaranteed return over a period of time. There are all sorts of uh, rules about how that operates, but that's, there are, a bond investment is ideal for someone with a lump sum. And uh, with you and the client together can choose the ingredients or the investments that are going to go into that bond. So there'll be a company that's suitable and many to choose from. And then into that, you you can together, you can choose the sort of ingredients that will make up the investments that will make up that bond. So that's the sort of thing you would do for somebody with a lump sum. Now, it could be the same client that actually has a continuing uh, requirement to invest uh, and, and keep investing. They've already been saving. Um, but usually it's somebody that's starting out uh, and they just want to start to build some finance security for the future. And again, there are companies uh, in the Isle of Man and places like that that offer that service. And the same situation applies really where you, you and the client together choose the makeup of how the investment is going to be. And typically, uh, if it's just starting out and it's a young person, then you, the investment will be largely in equities. There's, a, there's some risk in that, but the growth can be better. And then as it proceeds over the years, that gets managed and modified into more and more secure investments as it gets closer to maturity. So that's a typical sort of setup. Okay, so would it? So with the, um, so you have the lump sum pavement, but the other one is more as like a pay-as-you-go structure. Yes. So how then would you deal with the volatility of the equities and the stocks? Because if they're going up and they're going down, how do you like go around dealing with the volatility? Okay. Well, there is a there's an advantage that the bond purchaser doesn't get because he buys his uh, equities or whatever it is. It can even be in cash, whatever the makeup of his bond. He buys that on a given day. And if the next day the markets or the ingredients in his bond goes down, then that's that's a loss. So the idea with those is to keep them long term uh, in time for them to recover these sort of ups and downs. But 
the long-term investment where you're contributing exactly the same amount every month works particularly well because if stocks, and they do, they, they're up and down, they are fluid, and if uh, you're in equities, as you would be largely in the early days, if that drops, then you get a, a greater buying opportunity. So you end up pulling in more uh, stocks and shares into your investment because the, the fund's gone down. And then when it goes up, it actually slows up your buying because they've become more expensive. And we used to use the term dollar cost averaging because if you do work it over a period of years, you do end up buying your equities and investing at a slight discount because of the way it fluctuates and you're always investing the same amount of money. So an investor, if he sees the markets drop, it doesn't worry. That's just a buying opportunity that's occurring because we're looking long term and we're always spending the same amount of money. Yeah, it's also spreading the risk, I guess, a bit more. If you're buying more as a pay-as-you-go, you're sort of not buying it, betting on one risk at one time, making one bet. It's more over a longer period of time. Exactly, and you can still, and you do, the, all these, uh, uh, an investment of that type would be built up from various funds, and the funds themselves are managed. And people that are managing them will be looking to modify them as they go along to get the best uh, return. But the usual uh, uh, arrangement is that in the early days, uh, the investment tends to be a fairly heavy equity mix. Some of them can be emerging markets where there can be large growth or there's a bit more risk. But then as it comes to maturity and the fund has grown to some substantial size, then clearly you'd want to moderate the risk. So as it gets like that, you move it more and more and more into bonds and cash and things. So at the end, there are no shocks going to come at the end. So, you know, it's much more secure. What you've saved becomes secure towards the end of the time that you've had the investment. All right. So you've given quite a very uh, vivid picture then of the f offshore financial brokerage. But it was, I want to get more into Hong Kong and why it was in Hong Kong and what benefits Hong Kong had for uh, financial brokerages? Okay. Well, I'm sure this type of service is offered all over the world uh, in the home countries of individuals. But the thing with Hong Kong is that certainly for us, many of our clients were there for a period of time and they tended to be people that worked on contract perhaps for a couple of years for a building operation or design operation or some purchasing operation through China. So people would tend to be there for a bit and then work in other parts of the world. Many of them would be very traveled. So these were people that were moving around and they could uh, access the advantage of a, a, a low tax regime for their investment. And they can have something that they can take with them wherever they go. So the advantage there is uh, you're talking to clients that have probably got high disposable income some of them have got high net worth and they're mobile. They're sort of international sort of clients. So this, them being in one place like Hong Kong and us being there was an ideal opportunity for us to operate. And we were very successful there as a result. How then did you get in Hong Kong yourself? Because you, you weren't from Hong Kong originally. You're 
English. How did you get involved there? Well, I was in. I was operating in the UK. I was in direct sales, and one of the chaps that I'd had working for me had left our operation and gone to Hong Kong, and it's an era I had, didn't have any experience in finance, and he frequently sent me cards saying that how much he was enjoying it and how well he was doing and what a good opportunity it was. And my wife and I had been to Hong Kong once and we'd always fancied living there. Um, so it was one of the places previously we'd worked for the Air Ministry and we'd worked in Aden. And one of the stations that you could have worked was Hong Kong, but it was shut down. We couldn't go. So we'd always missed that. And I don't know, it seemed like a good opportunity to to go and give this a go and to go there. And it's exactly as he said, we enjoyed it, you know, immensely. It was, it was perfect. But we decided to go for a finite time. We had family all in the UK. So we decided to go for a fun. We were there about five years. So when you first got there, you didn't go straight into setting up your own brokerage. You were recruited. Is that right? Yes, it's right. There was a company that was based in the Isle of Man, and I, my friend in Hong Kong, had advised me they were they were there and they were recruiting. So I went along, I had an interview, and I was taken on. And then I was trained in the Isle of Man, and I went to Hong Kong to work for this company. And I was there about nine months when the idea emerged in the office. There were a small group of us that thought, well, you know, this is going well, and we felt between us we have enough shared expertise to start up on our own so that's what we did uh, you know we put together some money to make some capital and off we went and uh, it's a bit scary at the beginning but uh, it went very well many of the clients that we'd had formerly with the other company transferred with us so i suppose that softened the blow a bit yeah well when people hear of brokerages uh, the first thing they uh associate with right now is uh, like the Wolf of Wall Street and Stratton Oakmont where they were notoriously scamming their clients but in your case it seems like by taking the right approach with your clients it sort of was so beneficial to your setting up Cameron Butler yourself. Yeah I think that's true. Um, a very uh, important part of the business is trying to do the the, the commission or rewards are really quite secondary and the idea is to do the very best you can for the client because they can identify that yeah so although you said it softened the blow there must have been some difficulty in setting up your own brokerages um so what was the main difficulty i suppose well as always i suppose anything like this is just getting uh, some new clients because you you do get rewarded uh, by those that you've got because there's a there's a cost to what you do it's just so you get slow commissions coming over the years but you always want to be building the business and getting fresh clients and of course hong kong was great because people were coming and going all the time so there's a lot of new people coming in with the requ very requirement we could we could fix up for them you know where they wanted to do something they knew they had some money to spend they wanted to take that opportunity to do it and so for us the main thing was to uh, to get a steady stream of new clients and that's why if you serve 
the first people you see well, then there's a very fair chance they'll refer you to other people in a similar situation within their organization. And that's what happened. Referrals, we had a high percentage of referral business. Yeah, by word of mouth um, is quite a powerful thing if you think about it. So why did well, you call it Cameron Butler? Well, that was quite funny, really, because when we were setting up, we didn't know what to call the company. And we had all sorts of ideas and tried to work it out. And then one of the chaps came up with the idea of calling it Cameron Butler. And it sounded, had a good sound. And we thought that sounds very good. A nice, stable, uh, secure operation. So how do you think of that? And the, this, this uh, one of our colleagues, he'd worked out that uh, two of the previous governors of Hong Kong one had been called Cameron and one had been called Butler. Their names were sort of just about familiar to people in Hong Kong. So it sounded familiar and as though we'd been around for quite a long time. <laughs> so so we took that name and it worked well. Yeah, well, if you um, if it went so well, though, if it went well and it was all going well, why in the end did you, why in the end did you uh, stop? Well, we'd, we left the UK, we sold our house in England, and all our family was in England. And we had worked abroad before, I'd worked in the Yemen previously. And so we thought, we'll give it a finite time, we'll give it sort of five years, and then we'll come back. And it, of course, it was possible, because it's a worldwide operation in the end. But when I came back, and we decided not to come to England, but to move to France, because we'd always thought it'd be nice to live there. So we moved to France and from France I operated into the Ukraine and Russia for a period from France. And so I could I could do that. And so I didn't have to be in Hong Kong to operate. In fact, we had uh, offices throughout the Far East and even in uh, you know Hungary and places like that in the end. So I didn't have to be in Hong Kong Hong Kong to operate, but we wanted to live in France. So that's we and the handover to the Chinese turned up and we thought well let's get out now and the Chinese were showing a lot more interest in recovering tax from people who were working mm -hmm. in Hong Kong and previously they'd been fairly casual about you know collecting tax so it was nice to get out while the going was good really so from that move to working directly in Hong Kong to then France, where you're dealing with Russia and Hungary and the Ukraine. What was that jump like? Was it much of a difference or was it seamless? No, it was quite different because in Hong Kong, uh, everybody in that environment, there was a lot of people that were interested in what we were doing. Uh, in France, it was, it was different. Uh, you're in Europe, you've got all the the European tax laws and everything else. So we there I was going to Russia because we do, knew somebody in Russia so that introduced us and the same with Hungary. And once again when we went to those places you were meeting expats, but not always so, but that were in that same situation as the people were in Hong Kong where they were offshore and they wanted to invest and so you know we could match their requirements. So and it was it was a slower to get started for people to get to recognize what you were doing 
but it but it worked well. So you've dealt with people in Hong Kong, Russia. What were the most interesting clients you had? Well, they were all they were all interesting, but Hong Kong was uh, particularly interesting because of such a variety of personalities, and uh, a lot of people there. The primary reason there was to make make money, and it's a very active area like that. But um, well, I had individuals that were very wealthy. You know, you met people that had a great deal of money. Uh, I had one client, and when we were going through that pro forma at the beginning, asking what you had in terms of uh, investment already, he said he had a million pounds of uh, Beatles memorabilia. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. So you've you met odd clients like that. And another client I had, he was the director. I didn't know it until I got to see him. But he was the director for the groundworks for the new airport there. Because we, when we went, we went into the old airport, and they were building the new airport on the back of the island where I lived, Lantau Island. And, of course, I saw this chap. We fixed him up. And, of course, he had a steady flow of contractors coming through for all the work being done on the airport. And he just gave them my name as they arrived. So I had a steady flow of new clients. So what, as new people like entered uh, Hong Kong, you had access to like all the people emigrating to Hong Kong? Yep, I, that came in two or three ways. Somebody like the chap at the airport was very helpful. But I met another person at a, a party arrangement we were at, and uh, it was a lady, and she said that she she was actually in the Hong Kong import, uh, you know, where people immigrate to, and when the incomers are coming, it's all the details of newcomers were there. So she, once she heard what we were doing, she was quite happy to give me details of all new arrivals who were coming to Hong Kong to work. So I would phone them up. Sometimes I'd phone them the day after they'd arrived and they couldn't believe how quickly we got onto them. <laughs> so, so there was that. And then myself, to get started in Hong Kong, it's a bit of a slow start. And I was a member of the Royal Geographical Society. And I thought, well, I wonder, I'll, I'll just phone them up. So I phoned up in London and said, you know, are there any members of the Geographical Society out here? Perhaps I could help them. And they sent me a list of names and phone numbers, and I just phoned them. And that's that got me started, really. My very first sale was to a professor who was working out in Hong Kong, but was a fellow of the Geographical Society. So that got me started. So you needed somebody like that to help you get going, you know? So just like to get the ball rolling in terms of yeah, business. yeah. Exactly. I mean, the chap at the airport, I saw him and thereafter must have seen about 20 different clients there at the airfield, you know, so they could provide you with a great deal of, of new inquiries and new work, you know, it's very good. So from the description you've given, Hong Kong seems like the perfect, the perfect storm. But what were there, if any, drawbacks to being in Hong Kong? Well, there was nothing with regard to work. It, it's very, I mean, for instance, you, you turn up and there's no charge for phone calls. So 
you're using the phone. The phone is free, so you can just use the phone anywhere in Hong Kong. The and you have to move around quite a bit if you're going to visit clients, and it's a very compact, dense environment, urban environment. So, and the transportation system is completely perfect. Uh, nobody really bothers with a car very much, and you can get around very easily. So you've got this group of people in a dense area you can get around very easily and the cost of doing it is very low so it's a perfect setup really for the type of operation we were running yeah and i suppose that like being able the type well in your job like having to go out and meet clients that would i think suit a lot of people rather than just like sitting in an office and cold calling people yeah you could do both and and sometimes it was suitable for a client to come in and see you in the office. But uh, usually it suited people because everybody was working jolly hard there. Uh, it suited them for you to go and see them in their place of work. So that's what we tended to do. But occasionally, if they wanted to see you or after hours, they could come to our office because we could just open our office 24 hours a day. It was no problem with timings or anything like that. Okay. Did you have any like bad clients at all? Like they, they didn't commit on like the investment plans you'd given them, or they just didn't like they started review and then they just tailed off. Yes, I think you there's always a proportion, or just investigating and, and exploring and finding out what they can do, and sometimes feel they don't want to commit to do anything immediately, but perhaps come back at a later date or even go with another company because they just, perhaps they could do better somewhere else. But uh, a higher proportion uh, would usually go ahead. The, the fact that they've invited you to go and present to them and show them what you can offer, uh, you know, it's, people are pretty interested about doing what you're doing. And then if you make a very close match to what it is that suits them, then you've, you're pretty well sure somebody's going to do something. And of course, you don't have to do, the investments aren't stuck at a certain level. So somebody could start in a very modest way and see how it went. And then if they get an increase in their income, they can keep topping the thing up. And that's often what people did. So they would start in a modest way and then build the, the amount of money they were putting into an investment as it grew. So for it to be modest, would that just be like putting less money in or would you choose different equities? No, you, often you'd be talking about just a, a lower level of uh, commitment. You know, somebody might want to put in a thousand pound a month or, mm. you know, sometimes extraordinary amounts of money when people have had it spare. But you obviously it's good too with, a, with a, someone on a contract to have a very flexible program. And that varies in the type of employment the person's got. If it's somebody moving around with a large company and their income stays very largely the same, then it's not so important. But somebody that's perhaps changing contracts, moving from company to company, their income will vary. So in their case, they would want something where you could lower the, lower the uh, contribution yeah. you're making with it without penalty or increase it without penalty so it's a very flexible arrangement or you could stop it even for a period if between contracts so we try and find something that would really match 
the chap's working style. You know, that was the plan. Okay. Um, so the other thing then is you said how successful it was at Cameron Butler and that you'd built up a bit of wealth yourself. What did you then do with this wealth you'd built up personally? Okay. Well, we came back to, I'd already invested in one of our own uh, long-term saving programs. So I did one of those, but not for very long because of my, my age. And we also did a bond. So I did both of the things that we had on offer. But really the main thing I did when we came back, we hadn't, we'd sold our house in England. We were moving, so we didn't have a house anymore. So when we moved to France, we bought our house there in France. We just were able to buy that cash. And then a friend of mine was developing properties in the East end of London. And, uh, he had some flats in a Victorian pub he was converting and it was in a very interesting area for us. It was in Bow and we thought this looked good. So we bought two flats, uh, which we've rented as a, as a sort of pension plan, if you like. And uh, that's what we did then. And that's worked out well as well. That's been a good investment. So that's gone well. Even like during 2008 and uh, when the real estate sort of bubble collapsed it still was a good investment in the real yeah, estate no. no there's no question about it because we've had you with having bought the flats cash we didn't sometimes people if they buy to rent they they buy with a mortgage mm. so you're you're paying back the mortgage but both of our flats we bought cash they're both brand new the conversions were brand new so there's no real maintenance problems with them and we've had the regular income from the flats plus the capital growth. So we yeah. bought the flats. When we bought the flats, uh, I can remember one was, I think, £115,000 and one was sort of £120,000. And the last time we looked, they were sort of £350,000 each. So that's the capital growth over a number of years. This is a fair while ago, but it's very good capital growth. And we've had the rent as well throughout that period. So they proved to be very good investments. So you sort of built up like a passive income through renting these flats. Yeah. What is interesting, though, Jack, is that when we first took them on, the rent represented about 10% of the capital value of the flats. So that was a very high income. But what, especially compared to today when these, these returns are so low, but what's happened is the rent has gone up modestly and the value has gone up uh, to a higher rate. So we've ended up with the interest, the actual return has, uh, has reduced. And I think the net return now is something like 5%. But still, it's very much better than anything else. That you, certainly, if you left the money in the bank, it's uh, no yeah. comparison. Well, I suppose if you just leave it in the bank, then the money's sort of being robbed by inflation and uh, depreciation of the local currency, as opposed to the value, the value of the real estate, because that's obviously gone up over time, as you've just said. Said. So, do you still own these flats? Well, the, that was a plan for them to be our pension. I'm, I'm just well. I'm be eighty-two tomorrow, so <laughs> obviously. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> well, thanks for that. But my so my 
they've, it's worked very well with the flats and we have sold one and uh, we've still got one left and we've we we bought a four bedroom house here when we reduced that to a smaller place so it's all going to plan so we're now i'm 82 we have a house we've paid for we have a flat in london that's paid for and i also have annuities and things because i was self-employed in the uk before so i bought annuities and things like that i, I had long-term plans which i cashed in and at that time, I had sort of guaranteed returns on the annuities, which are very much higher than we get now. Annuities are thought to be not a good idea at the moment. So the plan has gone very well so far. You know, and the flats, were, they were, that was a good investment. Well, it just speaks to, like, the fact that this, like, the five years you're in Hong Kong has helped you since, like, the 90s all the way into present day today. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, we would have been in a completely different situation, I think. It gave our finances a substantial boost, you know, when we were uh, in Hong Kong. And, of course, when I was moved to France, we operated there for about a year with Camarabella, and I was nudging 60, and I thought, well, it's perhaps I could afford to retire. So I, I said that as much to my colleagues and uh, they bought me out so they they bought my share in the company and paid me off for that so that was another uh, thing that turned out to be a good investment the company having a part of the company what was your share in the company well it started off with eight of us there were eight shareholders and i think about three had left one just left to go and a couple of others weren't functioning correctly so the numbers came down so in the end i ended up with about a fifth of what of the company at that time so how much did you get bought out for well they they thought or we thought a reasonable payment for anyone leaving at that time was a hundred thousand pounds it's probably in practice worth more but you know there's there's nothing much there's no solid property or anything like that with the company. It's just the strength of the client bank you've built up. So mm. it was thought that £100,000 was reasonable, and that's what I got paid. Well, I just checked, and that today is worth around four hundred and fourteen grand. if you yeah, take so inflation. So, yeah, that's pretty hefty amount regardless. Yeah. No, I thought that was very fair. And they paid me over a year. They paid me in installments over a year. And uh, and that was fine, you know. So I left on good terms, and that was out. Okay, so if you get this, if you're getting paid in these instalments over a year, what did you do with that? Did you invest these into those uh, equities again, or no? By that time, you see, it's, this is the point. I was at the end of uh. a, an investment period, so you don't want to take any risks at all. So that's why we bought, we used the money to buy property mm. and already had endowment. Mm. So, and we, we uh, improved the property we had in France. So we didn't, we didn't, that wouldn't have been a good time to start going into mm. uh, equities in any big way, you know, unless you had proper knowledge about it, you know? Yeah, I understand. I understand. Do you have any regrets working in Hong Kong? None at all. It's one of the best things we ever did. I mean, we thoroughly enjoyed living there. 
and it allowed us to travel a bit in the far east a bit. So we went to other places. I, I did some scuba diving there and things like that. So we went to very interesting places, Papua New Guinea and the Philippines and all sorts of things. So that side was very interesting. The social life was good. It's a very lively place. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And we, you know, we were we sort of like Frank Sinatra's words, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. So we felt we were doing really well, that it was, was a success. We were in a vibrant place and we just thoroughly enjoyed it. But by the same token, by the time we left, we were quite keen to come back to Europe and get closer to the family, really. Yeah, I mean, you sort of got there like the perfect time because before that, it was like it wasn't as much of a free market economy as it was during the period you were there. So it was sort of like a perfect scenario. Yeah, I don't doubt there's people still working there in the same way that I did. Um, I, uh, I don't know what impact the Chinese have had on it, but they were getting much more interested in the sort of earnings that people like us would have made. So perhaps the tax liability has grown there and it's not, not so easy. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I think there's been more, well, because the Chinese obviously, um, well, they were communists, so they probably have more as state intervention in Hong Kong now. But yeah, nevertheless, absolutely. it was during the period you were there, it was like an economic experiment in the terms of free markets and it, seems like it did well yeah it, it was good it was very good for us and my son went out there and did well and my and one of my daughters came out there too and did well so we all profited uh, very well from it and had a thoroughly good time as well do you wish you got into um offshore financial brokerages before going to hong kong or do you wish like you'd done it in your 30s rather than your 50s and 60s? It, there's no doubt about it. We'd have benefited had we got into it earlier because it was very good. It was very enjoyable. And, uh, you know, it would, have been, it would have been beneficial. But it was something we didn't consider because I've got four children and my son was... The, three of the girls and one boy, my son, was still actually at university. So, you know, it wasn't easy for us to get away from England uh, until we did. You know, we couldn't easily mm. have done it without leaving anyone. So, All but right. it would have been, if we could have done, it would have been beneficial, no doubt about that. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you've given a very accurate picture of what an offshore financial brokerage does and given us key information about dollar cost averaging and how to hedge against volatility and then you've gone into hedging against inflation once you've amassed wealth it's been very interesting and informational thank you okay it's a pleasure jack cheers and happy birthday for tomorrow of course have a good oh, one uh, thanks for that cheers jack bye bye